31. Pressed in the poems. What kinds of scenes does Shelley like best to describe? Compare his characters with those of Wordsworth, of Byron. Do you recall any poems in which he writes of ordinary people or of ordinary experiences? 8. Keats. What is the essence of Keats's poetical creed? As expressed in the Ode on a Grecian Urn. What are the remarkable elements in his life and work? What striking difference do you find between his early poems and those of Shelley and Byron? What are the chief subjects of his verse? What poems show the influence of the classics of Elizabethan literature? Can you explain why his work has been called literary poetry? Keats and Shelley are generally classed together. What similarities do you find in their poems? Give some reasons why Keats introduces the old Bedesman in The Eve of St. Agnes. Name some of the literary friends mentioned in Keats's poetry. Compare Keats's characters with those of Wordsworth, of Byron. Does Keats ever remind you of Spencer? In what respects? Is your personal preference for Wordsworth, Byron, Shelley, or Keats? Why? 9. Lamb. Tell briefly the story of Lamb's life and name his principal works. Why is he called the most human of essayists? His friends called him, the last of the Elizabethans. Why? What is the general character of the essays of Elia? How is the personality of Lamb shown in all these essays? Cite any passages showing Lamb's skill in portraying people. Make a brief comparison between Lamb and Addison, having in mind the subjects treated, the style, the humor, and the interest of both essayists. Which do you prefer, and why? 10. De Quincey. What are the general characteristics of De Quincey's essays? Explain why he is called the psychologist of style. What accounts for a certain and real element in all his work? Read a passage from the English Mail Coach, or from Joan of Work, or from Lavanna, Our Lady of Sorrows, and comment freely upon it. With regard to style, ideas, interest, and the impression of reality or unreality which it leaves. 11. Landor. In what respect does Landor show a reaction from Romanticism? What qualities make Landor's poems stand out so clearly in the memory? Why? For instance, do you think Land was so haunted by Rose Elmer? Quote from Landor's poems to illustrate his tenderness, his sensitiveness to beauty, his power of awakening emotion, his delicacy of characterization. Do you find the same qualities in his prose? Can you explain why much of his prose seems like a translation from the Greek? Compare a passage from the imaginary conversations with a passage from Gibbon or Johnson, to show the difference between the classic and the pseudo-classic style. Compare one of Landor's characters, in imaginary conversations, with the same character in history. 12. Jane Austen. How does Jane Austen show a reaction from Romanticism? What important work did she do for the novel? To what kind of fiction was her work opposed? In what does the charm of her novels consist? Make a brief comparison between Jane Austen and Scott as illustrated in Pride and Prejudice and Ivanhoe, having in mind the subject, the characters, the manner of treatment, and the interest of both narratives. Do Jane Austen's characters have to be explained by the author, or do they explain themselves? Which method calls for the greater literary skill? What does Jane Austen say about Mrs. Radcliffe? In Northanger Abbey, does she make any other observations on 18th century novelists? Chronology end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th century history literature 1760-1820. George III 1770-1850. Wordsworth 1771-1832. Scott 1789-1799. French Revolution 1796-1816.
Jane Austen's novel 1798, Lyrical Ballads of Wordsworth and Coleridge 1800, Union of Great Britain and Ireland 1802, Colonization of Australia 1802, Scots Minstrelsy of the Scottish Border 1805, Battle of Trafalgar 1805-1817, Scots Poems 1807, Wordsworth's Intimations of 1807, Abolition of Slave Trade Immortality, Lamb's Tales from Shakespeare 1808-1814, Peninsular War 1809-1818, Myron's Child Herald 1812, Second War with United States 1810-1813, Coleridge's Lectures on Shakespeare 1814, Congress of Vienna 1814-1831, Waverly Novels 1815, Battle of Waterloo 1816, Shelley's Alastor 1817, Coleridge's Biographia Literaria 1817-1820, Keats's Poems 1818-1820, Shelley's Prometheus 1819, First Atlantic Steamship 1820, George Ivey, 1830-1820, Wordsworth's Dead and Sonnets 1820-1833, Lamb's Essays of Elia 1821, De Quincey's Confessions 1824-1846, Landor's Imaginary Conversations, 1826, First Temperance Society 1829, Catholic Emancipation Bill 1830, William I.D., 1837-1830, Tennyson's First Poems First Railway 1831, Scott's Last Novel 1832, Reform Bill 1833, Emancipation of Slaves 1833, Carlisle Sarger Resartes Browning's Pauline 1834, System of National Education 1837, Victoria, 1901-1853-1861, De Quincey's Collected Essays Chapter XI The Victorian Age 1850-1900 The Modern Period of Progress and in Rest When Victoria Became Queen, in 1837, English literature seemed to have entered upon a period of lean years, in marked contrast with the poetic fruitfulness of the Romantic Age which we have just studied, Coleridge, Shelley. Keats, Byron, and Scott had passed away, and it seemed as if there were no writers in England to fill their places. Wordsworth had written, in 1835, like clouds that rake, the mountain summits, or waves that own no curbing hand, how fast has brother followed brother, from sunshine to the sunless land, in these lines is reflected the sorrowful spirit of a literary man of the early 19th century who remembered the glory that had passed away from the earth. But the leanness of these first years is more apparent than real. Keats and Shelley were dead, it is true. But already there had appeared three disciples of these poets who were destined to be far more widely. Read than were their masters. Tennyson had been publishing poetry since 1827. His first poems appearing almost simultaneously with the last work of Byron, Shelley, and Keats. But it was not until 1842, with the publication of his collected poems in two volumes, that England recognized in him one of her great literary leaders, so also Elizabeth Barrett had been writing since 1820, but not till 20 years later did her poems become deservedly popular, and Browning had published his Pauline in 1833, but it was not until 1846, when he published the last of the series called Bells and Pomegranates, that the reading public began to appreciate his power and originality, moreover, even as Romanticism seemed passing away, a group of great prose writers Dickens, Thackeray, Carlyle, and Ruskin had already begun to proclaim the literary glory of a new age. 
which now seems to rank only just below the Elizabethan and the Romantic periods. Historical summary. Amid the multitude of social and political forces of this great age, four things stand out clearly. First, the long struggle of the Anglo-Saxons for personal liberty is definitely settled, and democracy becomes the established order of the day. The king, who appeared in an age of popular weakness and ignorance, and the peers, who came with the Normans in triumph, are both stripped of their power and left as figureheads of a past civilization. The last vestige of personal government and of the divine right of rulers disappears, the House of Commons becomes the ruling power in England, and a series of new reform bills rapidly extend the suffrage, until the whole body of English people choose for themselves the men who shall represent them. Second, because it is an age of democracy, it is an age of popular education, of religious tolerance, of growing brotherhood, and of profound social unrest. The slaves had been freed in 1833, but in the middle of the century England awoke to the fact that slaves are not necessarily Negroes, stolen in Africa to be sold like cattle in the marketplace, but that multitudes of men, women, and little children in the mines and factories were victims of a more terrible industrial and social slavery. To free these slaves also, the unwilling victims of our natural competitive methods, has been the growing purpose of the Victorian age until the present day. Third, because it is an age of democracy and education, it is an age of comparative peace. England begins to think less of the pomp and false glitter of fighting, and more of its moral evils, as the nation realizes that it is the common people who bear the burden and the sorrow and the poverty of war, while the privileged classes reap most of the financial and political rewards. Moreover, with the growth of trade and of friendly foreign relations, it becomes evident that the social equality for which England was contending at home belongs to the whole race of men, that brotherhood is universal, not insular, that a question of justice is never settled by fighting, and that war is generally unmitigated horror and barbarism. Tennyson, who came of age when the great reform bill occupied attention, expresses the ideals of the liberals of his day who proposed to spread the gospel of peace, till the war drum throbbed no longer and the battle flags were unfurled in the Parliament of Man, the Federation of the World. Fourth, the Victorian age is especially remarkable because of its rapid progress in all the arts and sciences and in mechanical inventions. A glance at any record of the industrial achievements of the 19th century will show how vast they are, and it is unnecessary to repeat here the list of the inventions, from spinning looms to steamboats, and from matches to electric lights, all these material things as well as the growth of education, have their influence upon the life of a people, and it is inevitable that they should react upon its prose and poetry, though as yet we are too much absorbed in our sciences and mechanics to determine accurately their influence upon literature. When these new things shall by long use have become familiar as country roads, or have been replaced by newer and better things, then they also will have their associations and memories and a poem on the railroads may be as suggestive as Wordsworth's sonnet on Westminster Bridge, and the busy, practical workingmen who today throng our streets and factories may seem, to a future and greater age, as quaint and poetical as to us seem the slow toilers of the Middle Ages. Literary Characteristics When one is interested enough to trace the genealogy of Victoria he finds, to his surprise, that in her veins flowed the blood both of William the Conqueror and of Cerdic the first Saxon king of England, and this seems to be symbolic of the literature of her age, which embraces the whole realm of Saxon and Norman life, the strength and ideals of the one, and the culture and refinement of the other. 
the Romantic Revival had done its work, and England entered upon a new free period, in which every form of literature, from pure romance to gross realism, struggled for expression. At this day it is obviously impossible to judge the age as a whole, but we are getting far enough away from the early half of it to notice certain definite characteristics. First, though the age produced many poets, and to who deserve to rank among the greatest, nevertheless this is emphatically an age of prose, and since the number of readers has increased a thousandfold with the spread of popular education, it is the age of the newspaper, the magazine, and the modern novel, the first to being the story of the world's daily life, and the last our pleasantest form of literary entertainment, as well as our most successful method of presenting modern problems and modern ideals. The novel in this age fills a place which the drama held in the days of Elizabeth, and never before, in any age or language, has the novel appeared in such numbers and in such perfection. Moral purpose The second marked characteristic of the age is that literature, both in prose and in poetry, seems to depart from the purely artistic standard, of art for art's sake, and to be actuated by a definite moral purpose Tennyson, Browning, Carlyle, Ruskin and what word are these men if not the teachers of England, not vaguely but definitely, with superb faith in their message, and with the conscious moral purpose to uplift and to instruct, even the novel breaks away from Scott's romantic influence, and first studies life as an island and then points out what life may and ought to be, whether we read the fun and sentiment of Dickens, the social miniatures of Thackeray, or the psychological studies of George Eliot, we find in almost every case a definite purpose to sweep away error and to reveal the underlying truth of human life. So the novel sought to do for society in this age precisely what Lyell and Darwin sought to do for science, that island to find the truth, and to show how it might be used to uplift humanity. Perhaps for this reason the Victorian age is emphatically an age of realism rather than of romance, not the realism of Zola and Ibsen, but a deeper realism which strives to tell the whole truth showing moral and physical diseases as they are, but holding up health and hope as the normal conditions of humanity. It is somewhat customary to speak of this age as an age of doubt and pessimism, following the new conception of man and of the universe which was formulated by science under the name of involution. It is spoken of also as a prosaic age, lacking in great ideals. Both these criticisms seem to be the result of judging a large thing when we are too close to it to get its true proportions. Just as Cologne Cathedral, one of the world's most perfect structures, seems to be a shapeless pile of stone when we stand too close beneath its mighty walls and buttresses, Tennyson's immature work, like that of the minor poets, is sometimes in a doubtful or despairing strain, but his in memoriam is like the rainbow after a storm, and Browning seems better to express the spirit of his age in the strong, manly faith of Rabbi Ben Ezra, and in the courageous optimism of all his poetry. Stegman's Victorian Anthology Island on the whole, a most inspiring book of poetry, it would be hard to collect more varied cheer from any age, and the great essayists, like Macaulay, Carlyle, Ruskin, and the great novelists, like Dickens, Thackeray, George Eliot, generally leave us with a larger charity and with a deeper faith in our humanity, so also the judgment that this age is too practical for great ideals may be only a description of the husk that hides a very full ear of corn. It is well to remember that Spencer and Sidney judged their own age which we now consider to be the greatest in our literary history to be altogether given over to materialism, and to be incapable of literary greatness, just as time has made us smile at their blindness.
so the next century may correct our judgment of this as a material age, and looking upon the enormous growth of charity and brotherhood among us, and at the literature which expresses our faith in men, may judge the Victorian age to be, on the whole, the noblest and most inspiring in the history of the world. I the poets of the Victorian age Alfred Tennyson 1809-1892 O young mariner, you from the haven under the sea cliff, you that are watching the grey magician with eyes of wonder, am Merlin, and am dying, am Merlin who follow the gleam. O young mariner, down to the haven call your companions, launch your vessel, and crowd your canvas, and, ere it vanishes over the margin, after it, follow it, follow the gleam. One who reads this haunting poem of Merlin and the Gleam finds in it a suggestion of the spirit of the poet's whole life, his devotion to the ideal as expressed in poetry, his early romantic impressions, his struggles, doubts, triumphs, and his thrilling message to his race. Throughout the entire Victorian period Tennyson stood at the summit of poetry in England. Not in vain was he appointed laureate at the death of Wordsworth, in 1854. Almost alone among those who have held the office, he felt the importance of his place, and filled and honored it. For nearly half a century Tennyson was not only a man and a poet, he was a voice, the voice of the whole people, expressing in exquisite melody their doubts and their faith, their griefs and their triumphs. In the wonderful variety of his verse he suggests all the qualities of England's greatest poets, the dreaminess of Spencer, the majesty of Milton, the natural simplicity of Wordsworth the fantasy of Blake and Coleridge, the melody of Keats and Shelley, the narrative vigor of Scott and Byron, all these striking qualities are evident on successive pages of Tennyson's poetry, the only thing lacking is the dramatic power of the Elizabethans, in reflecting the restless spirit of this progressive age Tennyson is as remarkable as Pope was in voicing the artificiality of the early 18th century, as a poet, therefore, who expresses not so much a personal as a national spirit, he is probably the most representative literary man of the Victorian era. Life. Tennyson's life is a remarkable one in this respect, that from beginning to end he seems to have been dominated by a single impulse, the impulse of poetry. He had no large or remarkable experiences, no wild oats to sow, no great successes or reverses, no business cares or public offices. For 66 years, from the appearance of the poems by two brothers, in 1827, until his death in 1892, he studied and practiced his art continually and exclusively. Only Browning, his fellow worker, resembles him in this, but the differences in the two men are worldwide. Tennyson was naturally shy, retiring, indifferent to men, hating noise and publicity, loving to be alone with nature. Like Wordsworth, Browning was sociable, delighting in applause, in society, in travel, in the noise and bustle of the big world. Tennyson was born in the rectory of Summersby, Lincolnshire, in 1809. The sweet influences of his early natural surroundings can be better understood from his early poems than from any biography. He was one of the twelve children of the Rev. George Clayton Tennyson, a scholarly clergyman, and his wife Elizabeth Fitch, a gentle, lovable woman, not learned, save in gracious household ways, to whom the poet pays a son's loyal tribute near the close of the princess. It is interesting to note that most of these children were poetically inclined, and that two of the brothers, Charles and Frederick, gave far greater promise than did Alfred. When seven years old the boy went to his grandmother's house at Louth, in order to attend a famous grammar school at that place. 
not even a man's memory, which generally makes light of hardship and glorifies early experiences, could ever soften Tennyson's hatred of school life. His complaint was not so much at the roughness of the boys, which had so frightened Cooper, as at the brutality of the teachers, who put over the school door a wretched Latin inscription translating Solomon's barbarous advice about the rod and the child. In these psychologic days, when the child is more important than the curriculum, and when we teach girls and boys rather than Latin and arithmetic, we read with wonder Carlyle's description of his own schoolmaster, evidently a type of his kind, who knew of the human soul thus much, that it had a faculty called memory, and could be acted on through the muscular integument by appliance of birch rods, after four years of most unsatisfactory school life, Tennyson returned home and was fitted for the university by his scholarly father. With his brothers he wrote many verses, and his first efforts appeared in a little volume called Poems by Two Brothers, in 1827. The next year he entered Trinity College, Cambridge, where he became the center of a brilliant circle of friends, chief of whom was the young poet Arthur Henry Hallam. At the university Tennyson soon became known for his poetical ability and two years after his entrance he gained the prize of the Chancellor's Medal for a poem called Timbuktu. The subject, needless to say, being chosen by the Chancellor, soon after winning this honor Tennyson published his first signed work, called Poems Chiefly Lyrical 1830, which, though it seems somewhat crude and disappointing to us now, nevertheless contained the germ of all his later poetry. One of the most noticeable things in this volume is the influence which Byron evidently exerted over the poet in his early days, and it was perhaps due largely to the same romantic influence that Tennyson and his friend Hallam presently sailed away to Spain, with the idea of joining the army of insurgents against King Ferdinand, considered purely as a revolutionary venture. This was something of a fiasco, suggesting the noble Duke of York and his 10,000 men. He marched them up a hill, one day and he marched them down again, from a literary viewpoint. However, the experience was not without its value. The deep impression which the wild beauty of the Pyrenees made upon the young poet's mind is reflected clearly in the poem, Enoni. In 1831 Tennyson left the university without taking his degree. The reasons for this step are not clear, but the family was poor, and poverty may have played a large part in his determination. His father died a few months later, but, by a generous arrangement with the new rector, the family retained the rectory at Summersby, and here, for nearly six years, Tennyson lived in a retirement which strongly suggests Milton at Horton. He read and studied widely, cultivated an intimate acquaintance with nature, thought deeply on the problems suggested by the Reform Bill which was then agitating England, and during his leisure hours wrote poetry. The first fruits of this retirement appeared, late in 1832 in a wonderful little volume bearing the simple name Poems, as the work of a youth only 23. This book is remarkable for the variety and melody of its verse. Among its treasures we still read with delight, The Lotus Eaters, Palace of Art, A Dream of Fair Women, The Miller's Daughter, Enoni, and The Lady of Shalott, but the critics of the Quarterly, who had brutally condemned his earlier work, were again and mercifully severe. The effect of this harsh criticism upon a sensitive nature was most unfortunate, and when his friend Hallam died, in 1833, Tennyson was plunged into a period of gloom and sorrow. The sorrow may be read in the exquisite little poem beginning, Break, 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 on thy cold grey stones, O.C., which was his first published elegy for his friend, 
and the depressing influence of the harsh and unjust criticism is suggested in Merlin and the Gleam, which the reader will understand only after he has read Tennyson's biography. For nearly ten years after Hallam's death Tennyson published nothing, and his movements are hard to trace as the family went here and there, seeking peace and a home in various parts of England, but though silent, he continued to write poetry, and it was in these sad wandering days that he began his immortal in memoriam and his idols of the king. In 1842 his friends persuaded him to give his work to the world, and with some hesitation he published his poems. The success of this work was almost instantaneous, and we can appreciate the favor with which it was received when we read the noble blank verse of Ulysses and Mort Berther, the perfect little song of grief for Helen which we have already mentioned, and the exquisite idols like Dora and the gardener's daughter, which aroused even Wordsworth's enthusiasm and brought from him a letter saying that he had been trying all his life to write such an English pastoral as Dora and had failed. From this time forward Tennyson, with increasing confidence in himself and his message, steadily maintained his place as the best-known and best-loved poet in England. The year 1850 was a happy one for Tennyson. He was appointed Poet Laureate, to succeed Wordsworth, and he married Emily Selwood, her whose gentle will has changed my fate and made my life a perfumed altar flame, whom he had loved for thirteen years, but whom his poverty had prevented him from marrying. The year is made further remarkable by the publication of In Memoriam, probably the most enduring of his poems, upon which he had worked at intervals for sixteen years. Three years later, with the money that his work now brought him, he leased the house Farringford, in the Isle of Wight, and settled in the first permanent home he had known since he left the rectory at Summersby. For the remaining forty years of his life he lived, like Wordsworth, in the stillness of a great peace, writing steadily and enjoying the friendship of a large number of people, some distinguished, some obscure, from the kindly and sympathetic Victoria to the servants on his own farm, all of these he called with equal sincerity his friends, and to each one he was the same man, simple, strong, kindly, and noble, Carlyle describes him as, a fine, large-featured, dim-eyed, bronze-colored, shaggy-headed man, most restful, brotherly, solid-hearted, Loving solitude and hating publicity as he did, the numerous tourists from both sides of the ocean, who sought him out in his retreat and insisted upon seeing him, made his life at times intolerable. Influenced partly by the desire to escape such popularity, he bought land and built for himself a new house, Eldworth, in Surrey. Though he made his home in Farringford for the greater part of the year, his labor during these years and his marvelous freshness and youthfulness of feeling are best understood by a glance at the contents of his complete works. Inferior poems, like The Princess, which was written in the first flush of his success, and his dramas, which were written against the advice of his best friends, may easily be criticized, but the bulk of his verse shows an astonishing originality and vigor to the very end. He died very quietly at Eldworth, with his family about him in the moonlight and beside him a volume of Shakespeare, open at the dirge in Cymbeline, fear no more the heat o' the sun, nor the furious winter's rages, thou thy worldly task hast done, home art gone, and tain thy wages, the strong and noble spirit of his life is reflected in one of his best-known poems, Crossing the Bar, which was written in his 81st year, and which he desired should be placed at the end of his collected works, Sunset and Evening Star, and one clear call for me and may there be no moaning of the bar, 
when I put out to sea, but such a tide as, moving, seems asleep, to fall for sound and foam, when that which drew from out the boundless deep turns again home, twilight and evening bell, and after that the dark, and may there be no sadness of farewell, when I embark, for though from out our bourne of time and place the flood may bear me far, I hope to see my pilot face to face when I have crossed the bar, works, at the outset of our study of Tennyson's works it may be well to record two things, by way of suggestion, first, Tennyson's poetry is not so much to be studied as to be read and appreciated, he is a poet to have open on one's table, and to enjoy as one enjoys his daily exercise, and second, we should by all means begin to get acquainted with Tennyson in the days of our youth, and like Browning, who is generally appreciated by more mature minds, Tennyson is for enjoyment, for inspiration, rather than for instruction, only youth can fully appreciate him, and youth, unfortunately, except in a few rare, beautiful cases, is something which does not dwell with us long after our school days, the secret of poetry, especially of Tennyson's poetry, is to be eternally young, and, like Adam in paradise, to find every morning a new world, fresh, wonderful, inspiring, as if just from the hands of God, except by the student, eager to understand the whole range of poetry in this age, Tennyson's earlier poems and his later dramas may well be omitted, opinions vary about both, but the general judgment seems to be that the earlier poems show too much of Byron's influence, and their crudeness suffers by comparison with the exquisitely finished work of Tennyson's middle life, of dramatic works he wrote seven, his great ambition being to present a large part of the history of England in a series of dramas, Beckett was one of the best of these works and met with considerable favor on the stage, but, like all the others, it indicates that Tennyson lacked the dramatic power and the humor necessary for a successful playwright. Among the remaining poems there is such a wide variety that every reader must be left largely to follow his own delightful choice. Of the poems of 1842 we have already mentioned those best word of reading. The Princess, a medley 1847, a long poem of over 3,000 lines of blank verse, is Tennyson's answer to the question of woman's rights and woman's sphere, which was then, as in our own day, strongly agitating the public mind. In this poem a baby finally solves the problem which philosophers have pondered ever since men began to think connectedly about human society. A few exquisite songs, like Tears, Idle Tears, Bugle Song, and Sweet and Low, form the most delightful part of this poem, which in general is hardly up to the standard of the poet's later work. Maud 1855 is what is called in literature a monodrama, telling the S.